0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by, well, two of my best friends, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, how are you? How is life?
1: I'm doing great. Even though it's pouring down rain here in Austin, I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I mean, the weather here is also crap, which is also pretty appropriate, given that we have some news today on the pod that is not exactly full of rays of sunshine. But let's turn to our happy member. We have (laughs) Natasha Moscarinus with us. Natasha, please tell me at least you are having a good day.
2: I am. And maybe you can tell by the glow on my face. But San Francisco is like finally breaking through its once in a lifetime rain parade and everyone's outside. Everyone's like just hanging out. I'm, I'm happy houred out a little bit, but I'm, I'm really happy to like be around people. My extroverted heart is, is feeling very fulfilled these days.
0: All right. Will you please go to Tartine for me?
2: Ah, uh, I will. I just had their um, lemon tart and I'm so sad it took me four years of living in SF to try it. It's so good. So, yes, I will. I will maybe try and bring pastries to Boston in a few weeks.
0: <laughs> I, I would not complain about that. I find the fact that San Francisco is cool again because of the whole Cerebral Valley thing. Just it, it just pains me to be so far away from my my favorite city in the world. But enough of that, everybody, we have a packed show for you today. We are going to talk about Monument and Tempest and the importance of keeping certain data private, what's going on with Acorns and GoHenry, and then a couple of notes on Q1 Venture Capital results. Then Demo Day Recap, it is Y Combinator Week. We are, in fact, talking to you right now in the middle of Demo Day 2, so we're going to get the show done on time. Then we're going to do a little bit of a Latin America check-in. Latin America was a key topic on the show forever, and then it went away and we want to know why. And Marianne has the answer. And then we're going to wrap with bad players in fintech. And no, we're not just talking about Marianne's text message log. We're talking about (laughs) some people that are now getting the entire book thrown at them, often at their head. But first, we have some friends, Natasha, who are up some awards, and we're going to give them a shout out, if you don't mind.
2: Yes. The TechCrunch Podcast Network has been nominated for two Webbys. So we have Chain Reaction, which is our amazing crypto pod, and Found, which is about founders. and has the best Twitter handle out of all of us. Go vote for both of those podcasts at vote.webbyawards.com. And just a huge shout out to our friends, Jackie, Daryl, Becca, and Dom, who is joining Found, as well as our production team, Teresa and Maggie. Uh, you you all are amazing. Yeah.
0: And I just want to say the fact that there is a TechCrunch podcast network is, is merely because equity didn't die. Yeah. And we kept persevering and then we made more shows and then we put a brand on it. So hell yeah. Wildcat podcast network. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. But yeah, shout out to everyone. Um, we're going to be asking for lots of votes and stuff. But yeah, five stars for us and and Webby votes for
0: others. And I'm just going to throw a brag in here. But uh, Jackie, Becca, Dom are all part of the TechCrunch Plus team, which is my team. And also I just want to say that the equity team is kind of like TC Plus friends of the family, if you will. So essentially what I'm saying is TC Plus equals TechCrunch Podcast Network. Ha 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 ha. My yes. evil plans are coming together.
2: Oh, smart. (laughs) That's where all the analysis is on the site. So like it all makes a ton of sense.
0: (laughs) Now we're going to start into our deals of the week and we're going to kick off with Natasha. You have some notes for us on what's going on with Monument and Tempest. And I think this is a very critical story.
2: Yes. So for people who have not heard of Monument or Tempest before, it's caught TC's attention for quite a few years. Monument is a telehealth service that provides access to prescription medication and therapies to combat alcohol use disorders. And it was Started by a founder who was seeking treatment himself. The news this week coming from one of my favorite investigative reporters, probably my favorite investigative reporters, TechCrunch's Zach Whitaker. Unveiled that Monument and Tempest, which Monument acquired in 2022, shared patients' private data with advertisers. Which just, I mean, hard pause. What a nightmare for the 100,000 patients that were affected. Everything from names, date of birth, email addresses, and actual addresses were shared. And it's been doing that since January 2020, while Tempest has been doing it since November 2017.
1: Wasn't there data also around, like, details of their problems like related to alcohol, I think I, I feel like it was got even more sensitive and specific. It did. Than names. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it, it also had a kind of chunk of data around the plan. The patient is using appointment information, assessment and survey responses, wow. detailed responses about a person's alcohol consumption and what was used to determine their oh course of God. treatment. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not just an email address. It's the entire
1: profile of a very vulnerable population. That's, that is like, Unacceptable! I I cannot believe it. If I were one of these individuals, I would probably be wanting to file suit. I would be livid. Violated is not even the word. I mean, you're already very vulnerable in this situation, and to be you know exposed with all these personal details of your life just out there floating around is infuriating.
0: And all to sell more ads. Like what a crappy. You know, it isn't like for like medical research or something that's helpful. It's just for ads. I feel like ads right. are this like cancerous little thing that just ruins everything. Look, we all know that I'm a recovering alcoholic and I'm open about it because I at once don't give a f**k and also I work at a place where I don't have to. Not everyone has that space, right? What if you were part of a religion that was opposed to alcohol consumption or a community? Or it, it, There's a lot of stuff here that comes into play. And this stuff – should be as private as the person in question wants it to be. And the fact that a company that is working to theoretically help this population was at once also selling them out makes me want to scream and cry. Like this is just so bad. I mean, it's not called alcoholics. Everyone talk about it, you know, like, and that's one way to get sober. Not the only way, but like, I mean, it shows that the general ilk here is you're as private as you need to be. So this sucks.
1: Yeah. I mean, they were claiming, I think that it was, inadvertent which I I doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to me but all I know is that like if you're touting these types of apps and you're asking people to trust you basically I mean this is again it's a massive violation of trust and and I just put myself in the shoes of these individuals and what about others who are vulnerable domestic violence victims or other other people who might use apps of some kind I mean it's Just the thought of like stuff that you think is personal, sacred and helps keep you safe, maybe is just out there. Like it really pains me. It just pains me to imagine this. I think we saw something like this when data was exposed through period tracking apps and
2: how that was being used to target or not target fertility treatments and just a bunch of questions. And I think we're still seeing the monument story play out. Obviously, you know, the CEO himself has been through this process and, and kind of alcohol use disorders in his own way. And so there's a sensitivity on both ends where it's like, I'm sure no one starts a company being like, let's, you know, not think about this. At the same time, which I think we talked about before the show started too, like you have a higher level of uh, responsibility when it's so vulnerable. Like, please leak how often I go to the car wash. Do not leak my my healthcare information. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, this raises a very critical question, which is, Natasha, you have a car? I don't. <laughs> but I just saw a YC company that's trying to create a
2: software stack for car washes, which that was adorable. It's one of my favorites. So that's why it's stuff
0: of mine. <laughs> well, we'll talk about YC in a minute, but I thought that was going to be some breaking news. Natasha no. learns to drive. Oh, um, never. Because I have... I have to relearn how to drive soon. So, you know, that's going to be a whole thing. (laughs) Anyways, if you're going to work with very sensitive information, your failure rate for data privacy has to be zero. Zero. That's the important thing. So, don't do this. All right, moving on. Everyone's favorite squirrel themed consumer fintech is buying a thing called Go Henry Marianne because apparently they want to. not target children, but um, offer fintech services to them. There you go.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. So uh, earlier this week, (laughs) we wrote about Acorns acquiring GoHenry, which is based in the UK. It's a fintech focused on six to 18 year olds. They have like a debit card, prepaid card that they offer them, financial education services. I'm doing the air quotes. And so, you know, Interesting deal. Unfortunately, they would refuse to tell us how much they paid for the company, saying only, yeah, it was like all equity and all the investors rolled over their shares, which is kind of interesting. I don't know. I'm not sure what to, to say about this other than, I mean, we we kind of knew we were going to see more MA this year. It, I would have to say, maybe not as much as I'd expected so far. I mean, we've had a couple of, of big deals. In this case, Acorn said that. They told me last year they had four and a half million subscribers. Go, Henry told one of our other reporters that they had, I think it was two million subscribers last October, which, when you do the math, is six point five million. But when they announced this deal, they told me they had six million subscribers. So I'm not sure about the discrepancy there, so I don't know if someone lost subscribers or what. But they claim they've been in conversations for two years, and the deal finally came together recently.
0: Okay, so my my first thought here is Acorns was going to go public via a SPAC back in the day, right? Right. And then they raised a bunch more money. Okay, so they're probably pretty well capitalized in comparison to GoHenry. And then GoHenry might be running low on cash. Maybe doesn't have the exact numbers and needs to raise it round at evaluation they like. Why not roll it into Acorns, convert the shares over, combine the user bases, efficiencies, efficiencies, efficiencies? You know. This unsurprising, but I think, Marianne, you're right that if we do see more fintech deal making, it's going to look and smell a lot like this later on in the year.
1: Yeah. Another very interesting thing about this deal, too, to me, is that it puts Acorns in more direct competition with other apps out there like Greenlight and stuff that target yeah. Like young adults and teens. So this puts Acorns in another category because before it was kind of focused on savings and investing for like the general population more as they termed it everyday people. But now they're like, they have a debit card. They're going to have a prepaid card. Plus it gives them an international foothold that they did not have. GoHenry's got, they do have users here, but they're based in the UK and they recently acquired a company. So now they have users in I think France and Spain. So now, now Acorns has an international presence as well.
0: Fair enough. All right. We're going to talk about one more thing before we dive into all things Y Combinator. I know if you're listening to the pod today, you're probably hype about that, given that it is the key part of the startup news cycle this week. But before, who wants to talk about data? Me.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's not just me.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Natasha. You always have my back. (laughs) Um, So a couple of things this week. Redpoint Ventures dropped a report recently going over the state of Series B and C investing that I thought was really interesting. And the thing that matters there is we're seeing the premium... Of startup valuations to public market valuations measured in revenue multiples or multiples of revenue come down. The issue is, and this was very interesting to me for series B and C rounds that Redpoint is seeing, it's still actually above where it used to be. And so some rounds are still a little bit expensive that are getting done. So put that in your head. For a second. We're also seeing valuations begin to change. Now, we have data from both Crunchbase and PitchBook that came out this week, and we're seeing a steady decline continue ish in the global and domestic venture capital scene. Now, the only nuance that matters there is in the late stage, if you count OpenAI's rounds and the recent Stripe round, there's been a slight uptick. But given that, you know, Marianne, the Stripe round was raised for employee tax purposes, and the OpenAI round doesn't really feel like VC. No. Feels like microsoft
2: baloney well no no, it's not well
0: i mean <laughs> baloney how
2: baloney and i don't understand it and the terms are very confusing ah. and so baloney as a venture capital lover myself
0: I, right I'll, I'll take that i was gonna make a uh I, cause it kind of makes open ai microsoft like suzerain like they're kind of like in charge of it it feels like or like it, it isn't like they're putting money into it and then watching right. it grow yeah you yeah, know? yeah they're like yeah So anyways, if you take out those deals, which don't really feel like venture deals, pretty much numbers are down across the board. And what's worse, and Marianne, I want to get your vibe on this, total exit volume Q1 per pitch book in the US, 5.8 billion, which is less than 1% of what we saw in 2021. How much worse was that number than what you expected, given that you're watching the fintech market?
1: I mean, less than 1%. Like, wow. Wow. I mean, so this is compared to two years ago, right? When things were like booming, booming, everything was going like crazy. But it was still still pretty shocking, as was the fact that, according to PitchBook, some $11.7 billion was raised by 99 funds in the first quarter compared to $170.8 billion across 892 funds just last year. Was yeah. that last the whole year or the quarter that was first the
0: whole quarter. Year. So we so in Q1 of this year, less than 12 billion. In all of last year, basically 171 billion. But if you take wow. this quarter's run rate and forex it's, you know, 20 it's like 26 billion or something and that is a minute fraction. So we're seeing venture totals go down, we're seeing exits dry up to essentially nothing, and we are seeing venture capital fundraising itself slow. I think the last two are connected, Natasha, because if you don't have any liquidity on your deals, how can you raise more money? Because who wants to give you more money?
2: So many people are in a holding pattern right now. I wrote a piece recently about solo GPs that I can't stop thinking about because it was kind of like, to me, the, one of the more interesting trends of the new generation of venture, taking names, writing checks. And a lot of people I spoke to, mostly this was on background because they didn't want to name names. But they're saying a lot of their solo GP friends are, are just waiting or they're not really planning towards the next fund. So they now have a ton of time to invest in that. And so even if you have dry powder, whatever that means, we're seeing people cancel capital calls. We're seeing, you know, just it not exist in the same way. It's not created equally or weighing equally. I don't, I don't have a better dry powder metaphor, but a lot of like wait and see, even in the AI space from VCs right now.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think of some sort of like dry powder metaphor, like because dry powder refers to gunpowder. Yeah. Right? If we're sticking to the gunpowder viewpoint, it's like if some of your dry powder was actually flour, as opposed to gunpowder. Sure. There, there, there you we go. go. But you put flour in your flintlock; it won't shoot. It'll just sound like a really bad cookie.
2: Alex, you had a podcast go live this week on Equity Wednesday looking through some of these numbers. What was the takeaway when you were talking to Kyle Stanford, who has a great last name?
0: He does. Kyle Stanford did not go to Stanford, nor did he go to university of Kyle. <laughs> it was fun. He's from PitchBook. We've talked to him before on you know, email and on the phone and so forth. And the thing that I was trying to get out of it was, is there anything that's better that I'm expecting? Was there any kind of like optimistic take? Is there any sector that's outperforming? Is there anything that's good? Our IPO IPOs coming sooner than I thought? And, and the answer uh, was no.
1: This is honestly a little bit more bleak than I would have anticipated. I mean, I could tell that my inbox is very, very different than it used to be in terms of, of pitches, and you know, especially in the fintech space, we're hardly seeing mega rounds anymore. Although I do have one coming out next week. Okay. All right. Which felt very strange to write as I was typing up the nine figure funding round. It was like, I haven't done this in so long. I almost forgot. But yeah, I mean, in general, you know, all I mainly see these days are like seed stage pitches. Yes. Some like series A, very, very few later stage. Did you catch the
2: Clavio news? No. They are eyeing a 2023 IPO. Yes. They hired bankers. And I was like, "Is this is a gift for Alex Wilhelm specifically. They did it just for you. I think you're so right, Marianne. Like that was the only piece of news I have to point to in like the last
1: year. Well, there is one other. A remote hired a CFO and... You know what that means? Yeah, they're not being shy about the fact that their plans are to go public as well. So I, I can't wait to see if that all of these things happen.
0: All right, you pitch a ball at me that slowly, even I can hit it. <laughs> I wrote a piece. Dealing with the Clavio news, the uh, remote CFO news, and doing a digest of what I'm calling the the upcoming cohort of IPOs for when the IPO market unlocks. What Uh, the
2: heck? This should have been on the show. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's not out yet. I wrote it this morning.
0: I squeezed in another thousand words between things, and it'll be out on the site. I don't know when.
2: I love that we're on the same wavelength.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the exact same wavelength. But just to summarize for everybody, venture totals continuing their sequential quarterly decline on a year-over-year basis it looks even worse. But what's the problematic thing here is not just numbers going down slowly, but the the engine of returns and money going into VC is really sputtering. And that could yield really bad stuff down the road. And with that cheery note for seed State startups, Natasha, I hear YC is doing some stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Marianne said, you're only only seeing seed raises these days. And so it's not surprising that YC is back with its biannual demo day. And they had what they say is the most applications they've ever had. I think 20,000 applications came in for this cohort and only 282 startups were chosen out of all of it. But yeah, we're in the heart of it right now. I There's so much happening. I think real quick off the top, the two headlines for me is that this is the first batch that we're seeing under the leadership of YC's new CEO, Gary Tan, who was not involved, I think, with the decision making of who made this batch because he started in January and interviews happened in November. But the other big thing is that 86% of the founders lived in SF for the duration of the batch compared to 53% in the last batch, which ultimately gives me the high level that the Bay Area is back, even for YC, which had gone super global, Alex, in recent years, as we reported on religiously as well.
1: I mean, yeah, like... I guess that's cool but I was a little disappointed to see the decrease in international startups like I think African startups were it was 88% less just overall right like the numbers were far lower
0: well if you have more people in person you're going to have a cohort that looks more like the people that live there and so you're going to have, you know, less diversity both in geographic and I would say across other kind of like things that we look at. I do love though that the fact that they reduced the cohort size all the way down to 282. I mean, that's still a lot of companies. And and yesterday Natasha and I watched every single pitch and we're catching as many today as we can. We have a couple of meetings that are in the way, but the moment we finish recording this, we're going right back to the YC stream. I'm still having a blast. I still love demo days. You know, caveats aside, this is still one of my favorite two-day periods of each half year because it's so fun to see what is the current state of thinking amongst The earliest stage startup founders. like I I just love to see what they're working on. And just to give out just some quick observations, so far, very little crypto that I can recall seeing. Not that many neobanks. People are still working on B2B payments for developing markets. That's going to be perennial until it's fixed. Yeah, But there's been some cool stuff too, some stuff that I didn't expect. And so to me, I'm not going to say it's the best YC batch I've ever seen, because I don't know how to measure that, but certainly a very interesting one.
2: Totally. There has been enough times where I've been like, oh, that is super cool. Just to give you to name two startups. Uh, we wrote about one that's kind of doing a, it's called 222. It's a social events app that's actually software based. And they made sure to say that on the pitch with it, which I thought was funny because I know every VC listening is why like you're creating in-person experiences. That's probably a lot of money. And then the most engaged tweet I had yesterday was about Momentum Foods, which is bringing meat into plant-based meat alternatives. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was hilarious. Marianne, what has your perception been? Because you're not on the stream but you're probably hearing about it all through the week
1: i think the the big takeaway is obviously ai is is huge this year and that's unsurprising either like the crypto crypto would be almost non-existent and ai everywhere so that's not shocking i do have a quick question we were talking about the smaller batch what how many companies participated in the last demo day for comparison's sake
2: i can do a year ago okay they had 250 companies, which was down 40% from the previous cohort. So it appears that they're staying
1: kind of flat, but smaller compared to a year and a half ago. Uh, got it. Okay. I mean, I think it's interesting though, that yeah, the AI, I think Kyle wrote a story about there's chat GBT for X, like, and I remember there was a year or a cohort where we kept seeing like the Brex for blah, blah, blah. So like, it's funny, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that that's the recurring thing that you guys are seeing this year too.
0: But I just want to say, we are seeing the... Chat GPT for sector X, but also what we're seeing is people using different AI tools to make what are I think now kind of being called copilots. Microsoft is also using that brand and GitHub copilot and so forth. So I think that might become the kind of de facto Kleenex-y way to say AI that helps you do something while you're doing other stuff. But I think building AI into the human loop is going to be what we see most effective in the near future versus AI taking something from soup to nuts.
2: I think everyone's like top question after they want to know what your company does is like, you know, selfishly, how is it going to impact jobs, 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 jobs? What about my job? And so I think having people say out loud early on that this is not a replacement, this is going to augment a very specific kind of habit or make it more efficient to me helps. I think yesterday someone had a really interesting framing where they were like, AI used to be a way to like get data faster or smarter. And now it's like kind of a lot more human in what it's trying to do. But that means also reminding people that humans are still important. So I think we do see that sort of like reality check from the YC startups, even in their one minute pitches.
0: Can we talk about that for a second because we keep calling it demo day and like we really got to stop doing that because what did we call it I don't think I saw a single demo. It's <laughs> one slide market traction day because like if you look at a lot of these companies and this is not a disc, I presume this is what investors want. So startups have learned what to show off on their slides, but really it's just like we're attacking market X. If everyone in X buys our product and pays Y dollars per month, it's an it's a Z billion dollar market, and our ARR is now XX thousands per month. They don't talk about like how the solution works. They don't show it off. So it's really just TAM slash traction day.
2: I don't disagree with that. I, I definitely don't think there's demos happening. There was. I went to five hundred Globals demo day, and one of the startups was doing like a drone sort of aircraft thing, and they had their drone outside, and people were going and taking pictures with it and they're actually doing a demo and it was actually very refreshing Um, I think some companies more than others will be impressive at a demo day while others will be like it is software I cannot screen share in front of all these people (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. And also, there's no way you could handle the, just the sheer IT overhead Ugh. of doing 140 live demos per day. So I'm not even trying to be, to be rude, but to get through that many companies, they only have so much time. So you have to kind of focus on there is a potential for growth and we are yeah. currently seeing that growth. It's yeah. like product market fit on steroids is, is the thing you show off, which is fine. Just don't call it demo day because it isn't. Yeah, it's misleading. It's also two days. It's more like it's pitch week. My favorite, it's
2: my favorite topic <laughs> to talk about the existence and nuance of the demo day. Like it is truly something we should all do at some point.
0: <laughs> I feel like it's just like talking about funding rounds from the, the journalist yes. or, or PR perspective. It's just never going to die. Before we scoot along, though, really briefly, my two favorites from day one were Kuru Kuru and Linum. Kuru Kuru is online computer aided comics creation. And as an aspiring artist at different parts of my life who's drawn his own comics, especially back in middle school, I thought this was super cool. I got to play with it today. And this is going to blow your mind but it was slightly harder than I expected. And so (laughs) they made it look so easy. And I I, I didn't realize how the controls work. So I made someone's leg like Gumby style by accident and bent the wrong way. More work to do there. But I love seeing a consumer tech product aimed at a market that I think people don't realize how big it is. But Webtoons and Manga are huge markets. I'm not a Manga fan, but I know people love it. So that's cool. And then Linum AI generated videos. Lots of questions here about the tech behind it, how defensible it is, but giving consumers the ability to make videos that they couldn't make before. Dope. I love it.
2: My uh, request before we move on to our next section is, Alex, make a comic based on equity and include it in our show notes by tomorrow. You have a new deadline.
0: I mean, I (laughs) I can do that if I can draw it, but... The Kuru Kuru tool is less aimed at schmucks like myself <laughs> than it is aimed at people who are probably more prosumer. Like they have some skills. Let's accelerate them. I was hoping that it was, ah, oh, you're useless. We're going to hold your hand. Yeah, It's, right. it's not quite there.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's how I feel about Notion. That's how I feel about most technology, honestly. I'm like, well, I'm not smart enough for this right now. But let's move on, though, <laughs> Marianne, to an area we didn't see represented a ton in this YC batch, which is LA- um, startups. You do have some good news, though.
1: Yeah, actually, there is some good news for uh, regards to Latin America. For one, I wrote about Kazakh Ventures raising almost a billion dollars across two funds to invest in Latin American startups, which is a huge deal. Kazakh for the unacquainted has been around for about 11 years investing in startups in the region. And, you know, $1 billion here in the U.S may not sound like a big deal, but in Latam, where only 7.8 billion in venture was deployed last year, a $1 billion fund is a big, big deal. So this was exciting news. $540 million was an early stage fund, $435 was for later stage investments, companies in their own portfolio already, and maybe some others, you know, outside of their portfolio. So that that was super interesting.
0: Can I jump in here and, and make a point? Yeah. So, we often talk about a lot of numbers, and I think it's useful to do kind of comparisons to make them kind of sit more cleanly in our heads. 1 billion compared to 7.8 billion, Kazakh just raised essentially 12.8% of all the venture capital that was dispersed last year in Latin America in a single collection of funds. So, like, an equivalent size for the US market this would have to be like a, like a 30 billion dollar fund like this is a lot of money for a market now you could argue that they should raise more money in latin america's underserved by the private markets fair enough but just thinking about this fund compared to last year it's enormous it's important and it bodes hopefully well for a return to form
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it was great, great news for the region. And in other exciting news for Latin America, there were reports last week that MasterCard and Visa and some other undisclosed or unknown entities are all clamoring to buy a company called Pismo that's Brazilian based and they their financial infrastructure infrastructure as we know in fintech has been resilient and continues to do well but i mean wow i i was like my eyes kind of just popped open when i when i saw this now pismo i wrote about back in 2021 they raised 108 million from investors like softbank amazon which was very unusual and excel so they're a banking and payments infra provider they have apparently a lot of large name customers. And so if this comes to fruition is also very, very big for the region. Heck
2: yes. I think people are finally realizing that fintech is too messy in the United States. So let's go elsewhere and like keep paying attention to elsewhere. And I think that's always been fintech's biggest strength. Kind of similar to edtech really is that US-based investors are always looking internationally for opportunities because there's so much yeah, I don't know. There's so much room to grow there. I'm so happy to have LaM back on my radar too now. So thank you for writing this story. <laughs>
0: can I just say that the fact that Visa and MasterCard are both going after Pismo at the same time, or Pismo? P- it's I yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. Oh,
1: in Brazil, uh, in Portuguese, it's probably is Pismo. You're right. But um, yeah, anyway, the, the fact that they're going both after them at the same time, yes. Maybe
0: if the deal closes, they can all have a round of Pismo hours. There we go. Does anyone anyone drink Pisco? I don't, but like, I know what you're talking
2: about. I think because like one bar in SF has that on their menu.
0: (laughs) Uh, If you haven't had a Pisco Sour, you haven't lived. Uh, Go go drink seven and then give equity a five-star rating on Apple podcast. Oh my God,
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to look that up. But yeah, anyway, I mean, I am really, really curious to see what happens here. I I mean, when we were talking about M&A earlier, but you know, here a billion dollar exit for a Latin startup in, in Latin America would be just really huge for the region, for fintech in general. So Super exciting stuff there. Also, I talked to some SoftBank executives, and they told me that they're still bullish on the region, of course, despite it's the firm having reported some, some pretty heavy losses everywhere. So they've got about $400 million left to deploy there. And so we'll see how that goes this year.
2: I think we see a lot of people kind of disappear and be quiet even earlier compared to the stat you mentioned in the top of the show on VC funds closing, less capital overall. My biggest worry was in these geographic-focused funds and diversity-focused funds. And so while a firm like SoftBank saying that they're still interested may not have been like as big of news two years ago, to me now, I'm like, you probably should affirm people that you're doing things because you very well could not be and may not have been until you just told us. So
0: more of
2: that. Please.
0: <laughs> all right. So now let's go ahead into our last section here. And this is kind of there's a news hook and a theme here all in one. So a startup that I wrote about several times, Frank, sold to JP Morgan, which is a big old bank. And then it turned out that some of Frank was false. It was faux. It was a fraud, you might even say. And the SEC has charged Frank founder, Charlie Javis, with essentially fraud in connection with the $175 million sale of the company. Now, some background information. The deal was closed back in 2021. So we're talking about a deal that was closed at or around the market peak. So perhaps given deal velocity, there was less, say, due diligence. But Marianne, the scale of the fraud that was put together to make this company appear larger than it was, it's a little bit breathtaking.
1: Bold, bold on the part of the people involved in this, if it is all actually true. Because, again, it's all right now, uh, allegedly. Oh, yes.
0: An alleged fraud. My mistake.
1: Right, right. So J.P. Morgan claims that Frank basically created millions of fake millions of customers in order to make the company more attractive to it to purchase. And so they, I think they said 4.25 million customers. And then supposedly Charlie Javis, the founder, co-founder asked Frank's director of engineering to generate this fake data and, and he would not do it. So she went and paid a data science professor, a mere $18,000 to manufacture the data required to close the deal. And then JP Morgan uh, reportedly found out about it when it sent out like these marketing test emails to this list of Frank's customers and like more than 70% of them, or maybe it was even more than that, bounced back. So, I mean, the fact that they thought that no one would ever find out, just like, it reminds me a little bit of, of SBF. I mean, like, really? Like, what what were you thinking? And then, of course, there's the the other side of like JP Morgan, like, did you not do enough due diligence prior to have figured this out? beforehand. So, all sorts of things going on here, but now Charlie Javice has been arrested basically, right? She's been charged with fraud. So, we'll
0: we'll have to see what happens. I think I know it's going to happen, right? I mean, this appears to be allegedly pretty whole cloth fraud because there's no way JP Morgan would have paid $175 million for the company's actual size. And whenever something you've covered ends up being This and this is—I think—hasn't happened to me much. You kind of sit back and go back through all your interactions with the people in question. You know.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: I remember Frank raised money. We covered their early rounds. I think they raised like a seed in a, if I recall correctly. And then I talked to Charlie when she was pivoting the company and essentially well, not pivoting it per se, but like extending it to include a lot more like online classes. And the idea was there were these open slots at online schools and she was going to help fill them. And she had all these partnerships and it seemed kind of cool as back in the era when remote was really taking off and people were getting more kind of accustomed to that. And Yeah, I just I feel I feel at once like I was done dirty a little bit in this process. But also, did I ask enough questions? Did I probe enough Did I do our readers well? And I think it makes me more skeptical.
1: You know, okay, I can relate 100% to this because last week there was a story that came out in New York Magazine about Daylight, a neobank focused on LGBTQ consumers. And it was pretty scathing. I mean, the allegations hurled against the, the CEO were, I mean, kind of shocking, to be honest with you. And I felt exactly like you did, Alex. I was like, wow, I talked to the CEO. He seemed like such a nice guy. And I'm sitting here questioning my own like judgment. I'm like, how could I not have seen, you know, like if all those allegations were true, like, am I that easily fooled? So, you know, I, I 100% know how you feel. And I feel like, unfortunately, I've had this feeling more than I would have liked to have it over the past year,
2: especially in FinTech. I think when SBF also kind of became exposed for what he was and has done allegedly. There's a lot of fingers being pointed at journalists for also not doing enough due diligence, according to some people. And I think my takeaway, because I I think it's like a lot of people's faults in different ways. I don't know if it's like the easiest thing to catch when we're reporters, if we're not going to see financials, if we're not going to get names of customers. It's just like everyone has a motive. And I feel like I've been reminded of that a ton of times recently, like the really chatty kind of like love bomb founder who like tells you things really smartly may not always be what they seem. And I feel like it's kind of easier to operate in tech journalism with not having that in the top of your head every time you talk. I think that's what makes us all optimists on the show. But I think it's like a good balance. I, I I think depending on which tech journalists you think they're too cynical, you think they're too optimistic. I think it's just like a conversation that needs to happen on both ends always. Yeah.
1: I mean, I would I would say for sure I'm a lot more, definitely a lot more skeptical and, and I don't cover as many funding rounds as I used to. And then to be honest with you, this is a little bit of a factor because I don't want to say I don't trust people anymore, but like it's going to take a lot now for me to to be, I guess, won over. Like I'm willing to hear about your tech, I'm willing to hear about your company, but I, I think I'm always going to just be a little bit skeptical for now until like until there's further proof that you are what you say you are.
0: This poisons the well. So if you're if you're a founder an investor or a PR person who wants us to keep writing about the earliest stage companies who will never share their, their hard financials, you have to work to engender a vibe of trust. And this sort of thing absolutely makes me sit back and want to just be like, nah, I'll pass. I can't really, you won't, you won't let me dig enough into that to really verify it. So I'm just going to ignore you. So anyways, it doesn't help much. And I think that, uh, this is a place where intra community policing has its place, you know? Yeah, Totally. Well said. Well said. Tell on people. Because the, the one thing I hate the most is when someone tell me it ends up being a fraud. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, we knew that. And I'm like, where the f*** were you when it was going on? Like, thanks for telling me afterwards, genius. It's like saying you knew the answer on Jeopardy, but didn't hit your buzzer.
2: Exactly. It <laughs> with Pipe. A lot of people were upset that Pipe, you know, the, the questions about Pipe, the allegations that are still super unclear what is true and what is not. They're like, oh, my God, biggest secret in fintech. And I'm just like...
0: Thanks.
1: Right. Like, thanks for telling me about that after I wrote the story.
0: Yeah. If you're sitting here going like, well, why does this happen? It's because private companies aren't notoriously hard to write about because they don't have public financials. So this is a struggle. We've gone on forever. <laughs> we got to wrap up. We got to get back to YC. A couple of things at the end. Thanks still for everyone who's dropping us five-star reviews or just reviews in general. Give us a one star if you hate us, but if you hate us, how'd you make it to the, end of the show? That's crazy. Bobby Twire gave us a review recently from Sweden. We really appreciate that. We love looking at our, the equity chart of like where people listen around the world. So hi to everybody, no matter where you are. We think you are amazing. So, you know, give us a review if you don't mind. And Natasha, can you do the uh, usual bits and bobs on our way out?
2: Yes, Always follow us on Twitter at EquityPod and use code Equity for fifty percent off annual passes of TC Plus. Like Alex said at the top of the show, it's where all of our podcasters are apparently from and writing on, so it has a lot of these takes and much, much more. And go vote for Chain Reaction and Found. You can go to
0: vote.webbyawards.com. And then we will give you virtual hugs and Twitter favorites. That's all we got. Anyways, Maria and Natasha, as always, thank you so much for coming on, and we're out of here.
2: Bye. Bye
0: equity Fridays are hosted by myself, editor in chief of TechCrunch plus Alex Wilhelm and TechCrunch senior reporters, Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picavet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week.